Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest podcast. And this will be a podcast that'll probably be about two or three of these, and this is going to be the acute abdomen. Now, I'm going to be looking at GI applications. I'm not going to be covering all GI applications. I'm going to cover a few select applications that I haven't covered in length in other areas. I'll first go through some general information about the acute abdomen just to review some basic uh, thoughts with you and then cover a few different areas. So, of course, the acute abdomen, it's a clinical syndrome characterized by the sudden onset of severe abdominal pain requiring emergency medical or surgical treatment. And that's the point. It requires an action. It's not something you get follow-up on. You have to make a decision. The patient's in the ER, a physician's office, the hospital has severe pain, and you got to make a decision. Is this appendicitis? Is this ischemic bowel? Is this diverticulitis? Is it infarcted kidney? Is it aortic dissection? On and on and on, or is it nothing? CT has been shown to be very good in this situation. Here was a great article a couple of years ago, which is very important in this era of proving uh, why studies are valuable. It made the point that CT in the ER increased physicians' level of certainty, but it also reduced hospitalization rate by 23.8% and led to more timely surgical intervention. So patients who have nothing can be discharged, patients who need surgery will get surgery early, and physicians can make up their mind with a higher level of certainty. And if you look at some of the numbers a little more clearly, more timely surgery, 11%. Ruled out significant disorders in 26%, and provided an alternative diagnosis in 26%. So all of things put together really shows the value of CT. Now, in saying that, CT is part of the story. Of course, we look at the clinical situation. What occurs in a 20-year-old is different than what occurs in an 80-year-old. Past medical history, does the patient have sickle cell disease? Is the patient a diabetic? Does the patient have a history of alcohol abuse? Are all important. Clinical presentation, physicians need to see patients, though the triage is often done by nursing these days, but whoever does it, history Clinical presentation is critical. What about physical examination? Well, you know, that's not as important anymore, but physical examination is critical. And lab findings, is there abnormal um, lactic acid? What about the pancreatic enzymes? What about the LFT? So again, all of this information adds to what we can do. Now, in terms of doing studies, just generically, acute abdomen, what do you want to do? Two choices, oral contrast is valuable, positive versus neutral. More and more, we're using water as a contrast agent, but if we go with positive, we use oral omnipake. And we feel that IV is always necessary. Of course, rule out stone disease. You don't need IV contrast, but beyond stones, IV is critical. You will miss many things if you don't give IV contrast. You will be uncertain about many cases. With IV contrast, your certainty level, your accuracy goes up substantially. Now, of course, the question with oral contrast is how long do you wait? If it's up to the clinicians, you wait about 30 seconds. If it's up to the radiologist, you'll wait three hours. So we need to find somewhere in between. And more and more in this era of fast scanning, thin scanning, multiplanar reconstruction, we're going to close to the 30 minutes. And the literature supports that, and that's where we are going. Now, in saying that, um, what else is changing? Well, one question might be, how do you look at these CT scans? Should you look at axial images alone like we've always done, or should you go beyond axial? Well, it's been shown in this article, for example, that uh, coronal and axial have equal sensitivity, but if you think about it that way, they're equally sensitive, but the coronals will have less images, so it might be faster. But also, uh, it was shown that it improved reader confidence, 
And confidence is indeed very critical, where the study is ruled out appendicitis, you say probably normal, as opposed to saying absolutely normal, is a very, very important thing. And this um, diagnostic confidence, diagnostic accuracy, uh, is most helpful in coronal plane for the least experienced people. And of course, your colleague is always least experienced, but the answer is, is that even the best of readers, the coronals do help, but the less experience you have, it's even more helpful in that regard. And in areas like small bowel disease, 3D imaging has been written about very nicely. Uh, isotropic resolution, which is what we're doing routinely now in 64 slides. Uh, again, article after article makes the point that we're changing. We're not just in the world of axial imaging. We're in the world of multiplanar. We're in the world of 3D imaging. Uh, and again, this is something you really need to look at very carefully. Uh, articles, I guess, are very important. And there was an article on stone disease by Megarashagi. If I pronounced that wrong, I'm sorry. And I apologize to him in advance. But again, technically, if you're doing uh, coronal reformations, uh, you know, it can be helpful. Again, so very important. So again, I want you to think about how you do practice. Uh, we routinely use coronals. Sagittals are helpful sometimes, but in the acute abdomen, coronals are critical. And I'll show you some examples as we speak about things. Now, I've lectured before about a four-quadrant approach to the acute abdomen, thinking that where is the pain focused? So it's right upper quadrant, you think gallbladder, you think liver. Left upper quadrant, you think stomach and spleen. And left lower quadrant, you think diverticulitis. And right lower quadrant, you think appendicitis. And that's all true, but pain is often not in any one quadrant. Pain is often reflected. Pain is often in the midline and the back. So this four-quadrant approach is helpful, but it's not perfect. So in saying that, let's look at a couple different things. So let's look at the spleen first, and let's look at vascular pathology in the spleen. And when we talk about vascular pathology, we talk about aneurysms and pseudoaneurysms. Most of the time, aneurysms are incidental findings under two sonometers. Pseudoaneurysms usually present with symptoms. Uh, we're seeing more and more aneurysms now because we're doing more and more CT with IV contrast, thinner sections, and 3D reconstructions. So they're routinely being detected. If you look at visceral artery aneurysms, the most common is splenic artery, about 60-80% of cases, with hepatic artery being number two, and you can see the rest of the list. Now, splenic artery aneurysms, as we noted, are mostly incidental. It's the third most common intra-abdominal aneurysm with a frequency of under 10%. It's four times more common in women, but three times more likely to rupture in men. So most women are asymptomatic and will continue to remain asymptomatic. Men can have more problems. Splenic artery aneurysms most of the time are associated with atherosclerosis. Though portal hypertension is a common uh, a situation, cirrhosis, pregnancy, liver transplantation are other things that are commonly mentioned. When we speak about pseudoaneurysms, we talk about patients who've had something happen. Pancreatitis, not the first episode, but repeated pancreatitis erodes the vessel. We talk about the post-traumatic patient, puncture wound, not uncommon, post-operative complications, Whipple's procedure, for example, and occasionally I've only seen one case of peptic ulcer disease. When patients splenic artery pseudoaneurysm present, it's abdominal pain, melena, hematemesis. When it ruptures, you may present DOA, and that is not a good way to present. Pseudoaneurysms ruptured up to 37% of cases with mortality approaching 90%. 
if it ruptures, you are not in a good position. So again, when we diagnose them, when we detect them, intervention needs to be very rapid. And there have been several articles making the point uh, uh, about um, looking at management of these aneurysms. And let me just show you a few examples and we'll talk about it. Here's a two centimeter aneurysm, resection, coiling. This one was coiled. You see the cause, portal hypertension, splenomegaly and cirrhosis, or this case, cirrhosis as well, primary biliary cirrhosis to be exact, splenic artery aneurysm. And in this case, you can see it very nicely near the hilum of the spleen, very common location, though it's not the only location. This next example, you see another splenic artery aneurysm, very well defined. These can calcify, they can be partially thrombosed. Here, um, there's no calcification or thrombosis seen. Now, what about this case? This looks at first like an aneurysm to you recognize the outpouching and you recognize the fluid in the right anterior perineal space. This is a pseudoaneurysm. This is a physician who was exercising. He actually collapsed. They called 911, resuscitated, went to surgery. They found blood, couldn't find the cause. Well, now we found the cause. It was a splenic artery pseudoaneurysm that bled. Uh, I looked back at the first scan. It wasn't a miss. You couldn't see it. I think the pseudoaneurysm was compressed by the large amount of blood present. And this scan is about two weeks later when he came to Hopkins. So you can see, looks like an aneurysm, eccentric, but there's fluid around it. That's a pseudoaneurysm. The outpouching is a very critical finding. We show it to you from multiple planes, coronal and sagittal, and some 3D rendering as well with MIP imaging and volume rendering. And so you recognize these. It's important because these will be treated by either embolization or surgery. Small pseudoaneurysms, like in this next case, can really bleed. Look at this large hemoperitoneum that's present with a very small pseudoaneurysm. Nice outpouching, very classic for pseudoaneurysm. Patients with aneurysms can cause changes in blood flow, which can also result in infarcts. And there's a patient with a calcified aneurysm, for the most part, with enlarged spleen and infarcts in a patient with cirrhosis. So again, uh, remember, most of the time they're about a centimeter incidental. Other times they can be very problematic. This case very nicely shows you splenic infarcts, multiple splenic infarcts. And we speak about splenic infarcts, we talk about segmental and global, with segmental being one or more wedge-shaped areas, most common appearance we see. Global, the entire spleen, usually related to splenic artery injury, uh, might be a simple phenomena or embolization in select patients. Uh, splenic infarction can be due to a number of causes from atrial fib, and mentioned sickle cell, tumors like lymphoma. The key thing about it, it's portions of the spleen. Uh, it can heal over time with scarring. Uh, sometimes the entire spleen is involved, as in this case. Then you have global infarction. That patient will end up with a splenectomy. Partial infarcts, these patients will typically scar down over time. They'll be treated more conservatively. But again, it's a very, very important diagnosis. And here's just one more example where about half the spleen is infarcted. And this next case where there are multiple zones of splenic infarction. So you can see there's a wide range of appearances. Often there's a good clinical history. Typical patients, diaphragmatic pain, left upper quadrant pain, lower chest pain. And here's a nice example of calcification. Infarcts typically don't calcify except in sickle cell disease. And there's a patient with multiple infarcts of varying ages. Sickle cell, the patient's spleens are usually small, but in this case, that is not the issue. 
Now, I also should mention that spontaneous splenic hemorrhage can occur. It can occur due to trauma, patients with mononucleosis where the spleen is weakened. We've also seen it in patients with repeated episodes of pancreatitis where pseudocysts track along the hilum of the spleen, then erode vessels, you get bleeding and rupture. We talk about spontaneous splenic rupture occurring in alcoholics with even minor trauma, something as simple as maybe falling off a bar stool. Good example here, high density blood. You can't really tell the cause here. What happens to these patients? If you see active bleeding, if you give IV contrast, they may do embolization. Uh, more often than not, I've seen these patients go and get splenectomies. So something to consider. Now, in the realm of the spleen, let me just end with one thing, which is splenic abscess. It's rare, but does occur. Risk factors, diabetes, alcoholism, IV drug abuse are the most common scenarios. HIV is another common scenario. Low density, rim enhancement, may have air in 20% of cases. Can be tricky. It can look like a tumor, look similar to lymphoma. It can kind of look like an infarct in part because infarcts can become uh, splenic abscesses. And here's just a couple examples. Large spleen, low density, poor definition, modeled enhancement. If I told you it was lymphoma, you would say, okay, that's fine. Splenic abscess. Another one. Here the spleen has perisplenic fluid. And next slide, you can see air within the uh, spleen proper. This is definitely a splenic abscess. When you have air, it's easy, but only about 20% of splenic abscesses will have air. And so if you don't uh, call it without air, you're going to miss 80% of abscesses. In the immunosuppressed patient, it's easier. Multiple tiny miliary lesions, often spleen, liver, and or kidney. Uh, here's just a good example, a beautiful example of candiasis. And here's another patient uh, with aspergillosis. So um, two possibilities. You think about those fungal infections, multiple myriad-type lesions. Another example of aspergillosis, very, very important. With aspergillosis, often there's renal involvement, often there's liver involvement, or it can be isolated involvement. The last thing I'll show you to compare to that, if you talk about the spleen, is this patient with abdominal pain with multiple splenic lesions, and you can go through the abscesses, those pretty large familiar abscesses, but it can occur. Metastatic disease is a possibility. This patient actually was subsequently diagnosed with sarcoidosis. So again, sarcoid can give multiple splenic lesions, can give multiple liver lesions, can give nodes. So there is some overlap. And again, it's very important to recognize that overlap. The last thing let me just comment on in this session is something that can be left upper quadrant, right upper quadrant, or back pain. That's adrenal hemorrhage. Classic story, when it's trauma, it's easy. But patient, this patient had a meningioma resected, doing terrible post-op. What's going on? No one can figure out. Uh, abdomen looks good, but look at the adrenals. Round, high density, that's adrenal hemorrhage. And with adrenal hemorrhage, you become Addisonian crisis, and you can die. And it's CT that recognizes that adrenal hemorrhage, as in this case alone. Unilateral adrenal hemorrhage is not an issue. Patients do well if one adrenal. But you have bilateral hemorrhage, you become Addisonian, and it can be deadly. Now, in these cases, hemorrhage was due to Coumadin. Um, in one case, it was due to stress. If you see hemorrhage, you have to make certain, particularly with big hemorrhage, that is not an occult underlying tumor. In this case, large adrenal bleed, but when you see a big bleed, you've got to make certain there's nothing hiding beneath it. And in this case, it was a primary adrenal mass, which was actually metastatic from a lung cancer. And this next case, it was actually a primary adrenal carcinoma. So when you see bleeding, 
when it's small, round, cuminin, you got to think about, stress, you got to think about. When it's a large bleed, you better exclude an underlying tumor. Again, as I mentioned, unilateral bleeds, you don't become Addisonian. You may present with back pain, left-sided, right-sided. So again, something to think about. Always think about the adrenal. And with that, the next thing we'll talk about is small bowel. But I'll tell you what we'll do. Why don't we take a break here and we'll come back in a few minutes and pick it up on the small bowel. And with that, have a great day.